Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know a group of flamingos on the ground is called a flamboyance, but when they fly in groups in the air, they're called a flock. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Final quote of the day. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. That was said by poet Langston Hughes. We're back in the seaside resort of Brighton this week, which is located in the county of East Sussex. If you want five quickfire facts about Brighton, I suggest you go back in my archives and check out episode one of season five, which focused on the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway by Russell Bishop. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make. I'm cheating a little bit this week because I did release this story as a Patreon-exclusive bonus episode in November last year. My patrons therefore have heard this one before, but I've got two good reasons for releasing this episode to the public. Firstly, as you listen to this, I've been away with my family since last Friday, I've only just got back today. If I hadn't stolen this story from my Patreon page, there'd have been no episode this week. Secondly, this story is one that needs to be told. Jane Longhurst was not just a music teacher at Upland School in the town, She was an exceptional individual who left a lasting impact on her local community. Born on November 6, 1971, 31-year-old Jane's dedication to her craft and passion for teaching made her a pillar of inspiration for both students and colleagues alike. With a background as a classically trained viola player, Jane possessed the unique ability to connect and work with students aged 11 to 19 who had severe learning difficulties, profound and multiple learning difficulties, or an autistic spectrum condition. 
Her patience and understanding allowed her students to thrive in ways they never thought possible. During the time of this tragic story, in March 2003, Jane resided on Shaftesbury Road in Brighton with her partner Malcolm Sentence. Malcolm shared Jane's love for music and played the viola with her in the esteemed Brighton and East Sussex Youth Orchestra. Their shared musical bond strengthened their relationship and fostered a deep connection between them. Looking towards their future together, Jane and Malcolm dreamt of settling down in the picturesque city of Bath in Somerset. They envisioned starting a family there, a testament to their unwavering commitment and love for one another. Regardless, these dreams were shattered by an unimaginable tragedy that would forever haunt those who knew them. In the realm of homicide, it is widely known that most victims meet their fate at the hands of individuals they know. Often, this grim reality unfolds within the confines of intimate relationships, where partners or ex-partners become perpetrators, or villains as I call them. However, there exists another harrowing dynamic in which lives are cut short by friends or acquaintances, an unsettling occurrence that happens more often than you might think. Delving into these distressing statistics reveals a startling truth about the prevalence of homicides committed by those with whom we share social connections. The Office for National Statistics compiles and releases an annual report shedding light on each recorded case of murder investigated by law enforcement agencies across England and Wales. Examining the data for the year ending March 2022 provides chilling insight into this lesser-known category, incidents involving victims who considered their assailants friends or acquaintances. During that period, 18 women were murdered at the hands of someone they once trusted or knew at the very least. While this figure may appear comparatively lower than other types of killings, consider its gravity when compared with the devastating toll of domestic violence. 60 women were killed at the hands of current or former partners in that same period, making it more than three times more likely to occur. It becomes evident that while friend-inflicted murders occur less frequently overall, it's a stark reminder that danger can lurk even amongst those we hold dear. The villain of this episode was known to Jane Longhurst, but he wasn't a current or former partner. Graham Coots was born in the Scottish seaside town of Leven in Fife in 1968. Limited information is available online regarding his family background and whether or not he had any siblings, but it is known that Coots resided in Leven for a significant period of time, spanning approximately 10 to 15 years. This can be assumed from the fact that he attended Glenrothes High School during his formative years. Coots's life took a turn when his family made a significant move around the time he was attending high school. They relocated a whopping 400 miles south from Leven to the English spa town of Cheltenham, situated within Gloucestershire County. It was here that Coots completed his secondary education at Westwood's Grammar School, a voluntary controlled institution that closed its doors for good on August 31st, 1988. Throughout his teenage years, Coots developed a passion for playing guitar, an art form that held immense appeal and fueled dreams of becoming a professional musician someday. Alongside that innocent and creative hobby blossomed something far more sinister, its roots quietly taking hold amidst the riffs and chords of the guitar. When Coots was around 15 years old, he stumbled upon a film broadcast by the BBC that contained a disturbing scene depicting a man strangling a woman. Strangely enough, 
this particular scene did not make him feel uncomfortable. Rather, it sparked something within him as he went through the final stages of puberty. It triggered an intense fascination with asphyxial sex, which involves choking someone for sexual pleasure. This newfound interest would stay with him throughout his life. After completing high school, Coots faced an important decision regarding his future path. He debated whether to enter the workforce immediately, pursue his dream of becoming a full-time musician, or continue his education at college. Opting for the latter option, he enrolled at South Cheshire College in Crewe. Although it is unclear what specific subject he studied during his time at college, based on my research findings anyway, it's worth noting that music obviously held great significance in his life. With one of his ultimate goals being to establish himself as a professional musician, it would have made sense for him to have chosen a music-related course. We don't know whether or not he completed his A-levels, but if he did, they certainly weren't put to good use. Instead of embarking on a career aligned with academic achievements like A-levels might suggest, Coots found himself working a series of manual labour jobs in the northwest of England. None of those roles got him anywhere, so he made a decision to move back down south in the hopes of having a fresh start. He ultimately settled in Brighton. In December 1991, when Coots was just 23 years old, he found himself referred to consultant psychiatrist Dr Larry Culliford to address his disturbing and unconventional sexual preferences. During their sessions together, a troubling revelation emerged. Coots openly admitted to experiencing sexual arousal when contemplating the act of strangling women. What is perhaps even more alarming is that these thoughts were not occasional or fleeting occurrences. They plagued him daily and were deeply intertwined with his own sexual arousal. The revelations shared during these therapy sessions paint a chilling portrait of someone grappling with dark impulses and urges that most people cannot comprehend. One person who unfortunately had to confront the disturbing fantasies of Coots was Sandra Gates, a woman who endured a tumultuous 10-year relationship with him. From the age of 21, Coots began transforming his dark desires into reality by engaging in consensual asphyxial sex, commonly referred to as breath control sex. Yet, this particular kink was merely one of the aspects that aroused him sexually. He also derived pleasure from witnessing Sandra crying. I don't necessarily mean during sex when I say that, I mean in general. He got off when she was upset. During their relationship there came a chilling moment when Coots confided in Sandra about his terrifying belief that he would one day rape, strangle and kill an unsuspecting woman. The weight of such a revelation must have been overwhelming for her. To make matters worse, she would stumble upon her partner's hand-drawn illustrations depicting women in vulnerable states, naked figures with nooses tightly wrapped around their necks. These graphic images served as haunting reminders that Coots' violent inclinations extended far beyond mere fantasies, they were deeply ingrained within his psyche. Another former partner of Coots was Nicola Stainthorpe, who had the following to say about their sexual exploits. He would tie me up with a stocking or the cord of a dressing gown. He would tie it around my neck and pull at either end. He put his hands around my neck and he wanted to make me black out, but I never let him. He wanted to put my hands around his neck and press harder and harder, so when it got near the end, it would make him pass out. 
To confirm, both Sandra and Nicola have stated that the sexual activities they engaged in with Coots were consensual. Their shared reasoning behind their willingness to participate in such acts was rooted in their feelings of love for him and a desire to please him. After Coots's relocation to Brighton, he found himself engaged in more manual labour jobs. Clearly, the move hadn't been the fresh start he was looking for. Initially, he worked with window companies and cleaning firms, honing his skills and gaining valuable experience. But finally, in 1998, he landed a stable job as a door-to-door salesman for the renowned British homeware company Cleanies. Continuing to pursue his passion for music during this time, Coots managed to generate some additional income through his musical endeavours, which made him quite recognisable within Brighton's vibrant pub scene. With regular appearances at local venues and an ever-growing fan base, he began carving out a distinctive presence as both a dedicated salesman and an aspiring musician. To the untrained eye, this period of juggling different occupations provided financial stability whilst also allowing him to build his network within the city. Behind closed doors, there was a far shadier story being told. If you were to look into Coots's internet search history, a deeply unsettling and disturbing world would be unveiled. The range of search terms utilised by him is nothing short of alarming. Frequent searches included phrases such as hanging bitches, death by asphyxia and rape passion. It becomes evident that Coots's taste in pornography extends far beyond the realms of what could be considered conventional or socially acceptable. His fascination with necrophilia, being sexually attracted to dead bodies or sexual activity with dead bodies, further emphasises the extreme nature of his preferences. He'd regularly explore niche categories that most individuals find utterly repulsive and probably didn't even know existed. The dark web wasn't really a thing during this period, but despite that limitation, Coots managed to access videos that were only accessible through underground sources. Amongst his collection were snuff films, movies where someone is legitimately killed, bearing titles such as Psycho Sisters and Murder Times 2. One can only imagine the horrors contained within those reels. Evidence also suggests that Coots paid for memberships on websites specialising in explicit images depicting women being subjected to abuse. For obvious reasons, I will refrain from disclosing their names or providing additional details regarding their content. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. In October 1998, Coots crossed paths with Lisa Stevens, a teacher and university graduate. The connection between them was undeniable. Before long, they made the bold decision to move in together. Lisa had been living in a rented flat in Brighton when Coots entered alive. As fate would have it, it was Lisa's flat that became their shared living space. As the relationship progressed, it became clear that Coots held unconventional sexual desires. Just as he had done with his previous partners, he began urging Lisa to explore more experimental and kinky activities in the bedroom. One particular activity involved engaging in, you guessed it, asphyxial sex. As he had with Nicola, he always took things one step further, such as using a dressing gown cord on Lisa's neck. The term escalation can be inserted here to describe how Coots's exploits were progressively getting more violent. Though he did not tighten the dressing gown cord excessively or cause any harm, Lisa remained unimpressed by the unsettling display. She said, 
It didn't turn me on. I let him know that, and he didn't push it. In January 2003, Lisa and Coots received the joyful news they had been desperately waiting for. She was pregnant. This momentous occasion brought a glimmer of hope after the loss of their precious child in 2002. The couple's prayers seemed to have been answered, and anticipation filled their hearts as they embarked on this new journey towards parenthood. Amidst these hopeful times, and when Lisa was roughly eight weeks pregnant, Coots began delving further into his alarming obsession with extreme pornography. His searches continued to extend beyond mere voyeurism as he actively sought out images and videos depicting women being subjected to unimaginable acts of violence, including, but not limited to, strangulation and rape. On March 13th, Coots's internet searches intensified even more. It's difficult to fathom what drove him down this dark path or whether it served as some sort of psychological preparation for the unthinkable act he would commit just one day later. Let's bring Jane back into the story now. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Jane had a personal connection to her killer. But how did they know each other? Well, it turns out that Jane was actually Lisa Stevens' best friend. Naturally, through this close friendship with Lisa, Coots's partner, she became acquainted with him. It's important to note that while they were friendly towards one another and maintained a courteous relationship, it never went beyond that on an intimate or sexual level, at least not in Jane's mind. Their interactions were always kept at a surface-level friendship without any romantic involvement, but who knows what kind of debauchery was going through Coots's mind at any given moment. Friday, March 14th marked a much-anticipated day off work for Jane. Eager to enjoy her free time, she decided to reach out to Lisa by phoning her. Assuming her friend was at home, Jane was taken aback when, instead of hearing Lisa's voice on the other end of the line, it was Coots who answered. He just so happened to be at Lisa's flat during this particular moment and caught Jane completely off guard with his unexpected response. He somehow managed to persuade Jane to go swimming with him on that fateful day. For some context, this wasn't the first time he'd invited Jane for a swim. They'd previously gone swimming together on several occasions. As their plans started taking shape, Coots picked up Jane from her flat. En route to their supposed destination, the swimming baths, Coots convinced Jane to abandon the idea altogether and instead redirect themselves towards his own flat located in Hove. Hove is another seaside resort nearby and one of the two main parts of the city of Brighton and Hove. What happened upon their arrival at the flat, by which I mean the precise sequence of events, is known only to Graham Coots, and his testimony and continuous denial are not much to go on. The details surrounding the murder of Jane Longhurst remain shrouded in mystery, leaving many unanswered questions for investigators and those seeking justice. It's believed that Coots strangled Jane to death while she was lying down and facing him. It is speculated that he used a pair of Lisa's tights during this horrific act, and disturbingly, it has also been suggested that the pair were engaged in sexual activity at the time of the murder. What remains unclear is whether the sex was consensual or not. Without definitive evidence or testimony from both parties involved, all they have is the word of Coots, determining consent became an intricate challenge for detectives working the case. The lack of concrete information further complicates understanding the motive of such a brutal crime. Granted, we know that Coots has a beyond disturbing obsession with some of the darkest taboos out there, 
but it still leaves us in the dark as to why he took that final escalation step and committed murder. One can only speculate. By midnight, a concerned Malcolm had reported his partner as missing to the police. Worried about Jane's sudden disappearance, he hoped that they would be able to locate her quickly and bring her back home safely. Little did he know the horrifying truth that awaited them all. A thorough search was subsequently launched by police officers who were determined to find any trace of Jane. Despite the best efforts, weeks went by without any significant leads or clues emerging from their investigation. The mystery surrounding Jane's whereabouts only deepened as time passed. Unbeknownst to the authorities at that time, there was a sinister reason for their inability to locate Jane. Coots had callously hidden her lifeless body inside a cardboard box in his garden shed. For nearly two weeks, Jane's remains lay concealed within this morbid hiding place. It wasn't until police officers visited Coots at his flat asking questions about his last contact with Jane that he began to panic. Fearing that these investigators might return and discover the foul smell emanating from his garden shed, he knew he had to take action. Instead of burying Jane's body, as one might expect, Coots made a chilling decision. He would rent a unit at Big Yellow Storage Company in Brighton under the false name Paul Kelly. The story he told the staff there was that he needed the unit after splitting up with his partner, claiming that he needed a space to store his belongings. Little did anyone suspect that within the confines of Unit C50 lay something far more sinister. Jane's body remained concealed within the confines of the storage unit for almost a month and Cooks regularly visited it to view what he considered to be his trophy. On April 19th, Cooks removed Jane's body from Unit C50 and transported it to a desolate woodland area near Wiganholt Common in Pulborough, West Sussex. He then callously set Jane's body on fire before hastily fleeing the scene. A stroke of fate intervened when an unsuspecting member of the public stumbled upon the horrifying sight mere moments later. Recognising the urgency of the situation, they promptly alerted the emergency services to extinguish the fire. As the flames subsided and reality settled in for those first responders who had bravely confronted the scene, it became clear they were not dealing with an accidental fire. Instead, they were faced with a crime. Murder. Jane's body was so severely burned that the only way she could be identified was through her dental records. Police combed through every facet of Jane's life in search of answers and questioned everyone in her immediate circle. Within a matter of days, their radar was fixed squarely on Graham Coots. CCTV footage then surfaced from the Big Yellow Storage Company, which shed light on a crucial moment in the investigation surrounding the tragic murder of Jane Longhurst. The footage captured Coots removing a conspicuously large box from one of the storage units on April 19th. Unit C50 was meticulously searched by the investigating officers, revealing a harrowing and disturbing array of evidence that would forever cement Coots' involvement in Jane's murder. Amongst the discoveries within the unit were Jane's personal belongings, which had been scattered about, serving as a haunting reminder of her presence. Officers soon stumbled upon Jane's phone and purse, but it was not just personal effects that they uncovered within the unit. A blood-stained rope lay ominously amidst the chaos. Close to it was another damning piece of evidence, a shirt stained with blood and semen. Analysis swiftly confirmed what investigators had dreaded. The blood belonged to Jane and the semen 
belonged to Coots. He was soon arrested and charged with the murder of Jane Longhurst, but he vehemently denied any intention to harm her and claimed that her tragic death was nothing more than a devastating accident. According to Coots, he and Jane had willingly participated in consensual asphyxial sex, but something went terribly wrong during their encounter. He said, I have done this a couple of hundred times previously, and to this day there has never been an issue of it being unsafe. It's always been safe. During the highly publicised first trial at Lewes Crown Court in February 2004, Coots maintained his innocence regarding the murder of Jane. Instead, he continued to claim that her tragic death was nothing more than a terrible accident. Still, Coots did plead guilty to keeping Jane's body inside the storage unit for the best part of a month. Despite his adamant denial and attempts to convince the court otherwise, the jury was unconvinced by his version of events. They firmly believed that Jane's death was no accident. Consequently, Coots was found guilty of murder. Judge Richard Brown wasted no time sentencing him to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years, later reduced to 26 years. During sentencing, Judge Brown said, In seeking perverted sexual gratification by way of your sordid and evil fantasies, you've taken her life and devastated the lives of those she loved and of those who loved her. Following Coots's conviction, Liz Longhurst, Jane's grieving mum, embarked on a tireless campaign to bring about a meaningful change in society. Recognising that her daughter's murder was influenced by an obsession with violent and extreme pornography found online, Liz aimed to eradicate such harmful content from the digital realm. Determined to prevent others from falling victim to such heinous acts fueled by graphic depictions of violence, Liz tirelessly advocated for legislative action. Her tenacity paid off when the campaign achieved a significant milestone, the introduction of Section 63 of the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act 2008. Under this landmark legislation, the possession or distribution of violent pornographic images became a criminal offence. Individuals found guilty could now face imprisonment for up to three years, a stern deterrent intended to safeguard vulnerable individuals and protect society at large. In a bizarre turn of events, Coots's murder conviction was overturned in July 2006 due to a ruling by the House of Lords. It was ruled that the initial trial had failed to offer the jurors an alternative charge of manslaughter, leaving them with no option but to consider only the charge of murder. This legal loophole raised questions about whether justice had indeed been served. Coots's freedom was short-lived though, as he faced a retrial in the summer of 2007. After deliberations that lasted over 13 hours, a majority verdict was reached when 11 out of the 12 jury members found him guilty of Jane's murder once again. The evidence presented during the second trial shed more light on Coots's disturbing sexual tendencies and dark secrets. A staggering discovery emerged from his computer. Over 800 pornographic images were unearthed, revealing a deeply unsettling pattern. Approximately 85% of the explicit images were categorised under themes such as asphyxiation and strangulation, rape torture and violent sex. Sentencing Coots to life with a minimum term of 26 years at the Old Bailey on July 5th, Judge Richard Hone said, This case has been one of the most testing ones that, in my experience, a jury has had to try. Liz Longhurst had the following to say after the retrial had concluded. 
I trust that we will now be able to resume our lives, safe in the knowledge that Jane's reputation is unsullied and we can remember her as the lovely person she was, gifted, caring and bringing happiness to all. Detective Inspector Chris Standard said, Graham Coots has been convicted of murder for the second time in the face of overwhelming and compelling evidence. He is a ruthless killer who presents a great danger to women. Our thoughts remain with Jane's mother and sister and also Jane's partner Malcolm who have conducted themselves with great dignity throughout two trials and a very lengthy, very disheartening appeal process. Originally serving his sentence in the Monster Mansion, known officially as HMP Wakefield, Graham Coots was granted an accumulated visits trip to HMP Edinburgh in 2010. Accumulated visits see prisoners based a long distance away from their families being moved to prisons closer to home for a short period. Whilst at HMP Edinburgh, Coots appreciated the scenic views and longed to make it the place where he served out the rest of his sentence. If not there, any other Scottish prison would suffice. In January 2014, Coots started a blog on his website and he was a frequent poster. Recalling his dream trip to HMP Edinburgh, he once wrote, I had the most beautiful view of a snow-topped mountain. He was referring to the Pentland Hills, which, to be fair, are absolutely breathtaking. Other bizarre posts showed Coots complaining about the poor quality of prison food. On the back of launching his 12th complaint with the prison service, Coots wrote on his blog, They've started rationing the portion size of chips. I'm going to do something about the kitchen's cavalier approach to providing a sufficient quantity of food. Case number 12 is being drafted. He also complained that the price of coffee in prison were too expensive and that his transfer request to a Scottish prison was taking too long. Outrage followed after it was revealed the prison service had used taxpayers' money to fund a rock opera titled The Four Lives of Jimmy G. Put on to his fellow prisoners by Coots, the show cost a reported £13,437 and was funded by the Arts Council, which is funded by the government and the National Lottery. The funds were used to help pay for the sets, costumes, artwork, publications and performances. I tried to access Coots' website during my research, but it no longer exists. His continuous request to move prisons appear to have finally been granted a couple of years ago, and in what he said would be his last ever blog post, Coots wrote, You can either write to me or use email a prisoner, either here at HMP Wakefield or when I get to Scotland in, hopefully, not too much longer and surely by the end of this year. And that was the story of Jane Longhurst and British murderer Graham Coots. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. If you're listening on Spotify, you can let me know at the bottom of the episode. There's a section where you can let me know your thoughts. I've got just two new reviews to read out this week. Emma97 left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Titled simply the best, it reads, Started listening to the podcast after my boyfriend suggested it. Absolutely brilliant. Stuart is engaging, funny without being crude, and tells you the facts of the case honestly and with compassion may I suggest you cover the case of Gregory Baker, killed in Staffordshire in 2007. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Emma. And Debbie G left a three-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Quite Entertaining. It reads, The host has an unusual approach. I don't know how old he is, but the fact he hasn't heard of good King Wenceslas and didn't know what a croupier was is a little shocking to me. 
it's all a little immature. Fair enough, my presenting style may not be your cup of tea, Debbie, and although I may be immature, I'm 34 by the way, my show certainly isn't. Also, for the record, I do know the song Good King Wenceslas, I just didn't know that's what it was called. Regardless, thank you Emma and Debbie for those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, Brian, for buying me three beers at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. The message left was, submitted a review on your website. Cheers for the great content. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out for your troubles. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.